And I want people to orient towards something that feels uncomfortable because that's the place where you're going to grow from. If you're just comfortable and you're just kind of going along, right, you're not going to move or change. You're not going to get outside of that comfort zone to do something that might be better for you. And so you want to be on that edge of where there's some discomfort, but not so much discomfort that you're so intimidated that you're not going to try something new. It's almost like most big transformations come about from the hundreds of tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. I'm Doug Bobst personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about something that's extremely important and relevant right now, and that is mental health. And it's no secret this pandemic has severely impacted people's mental health. Many have lost their jobs and taken a massive hit financially. Addictions up and alcohol sales have skyrocketed. Depression, anxiety, stress levels, and sleep have all been affected too. And isolation can really cause a ton of havoc on us mentally as it limits our ability to connect with one another. And, you know, we are meant to thrive in community. Community is not only good for our mental health, it's also good for our physical and emotional health as well. Uh, So with that being said, I wanted to bring on Lori Gottlieb to chat about how you can improve your mental health right now. And for those who don't know who Lori is, Lori is a psychotherapist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Uh, which is being adapted as a television series with Eva Longoria. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. Her recent TED Talk is one of the top 10 most watched the year. She is a sought-after expert in media, such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. And she is also the co-host of the new iHeartRadio podcast, Dear Therapist, which is produced by Katie Couric. And in this episode, Lori walks us through her incredible story, um, the effects of isolation on mental health, and some steps we can all take to improve it. So I'm extremely excited to welcome Lori Gottlieb to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Lori, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating to me, your story and everything that you've been able to accomplish in your life and, you know, from being in the media and then, you know, journaling and, you know, I mean, man, you picked the best. I was like Yale, Pepperdine, and Stanford to go to. So like you really crossed the ball off. But we were talking before we were recording on like the the pandemic and mental health. And it's something I'm really passionate about. I know you are as well. What are your thoughts on what, you know, isolation is doing to people's mental health and how it's like leading them into, you know, other poor habits and perhaps other addictions? Right. Well, I think as humans, we want to be connected to Mm. other people. And even in pre-COVID times, I think there was sort of this epidemic of loneliness happening. I would see it with my patients. I write about it a lot in the patients that I follow and maybe you should talk to someone. And, you know, even the title of the book, by the way, maybe you should talk to someone doesn't necessarily mean maybe you should talk to a therapist. It means maybe we need to talk more to one another. And I think that a lot of the times what happens is we're so you know, kind of distracted by all of these things that are not nourishing to us. And we don't realize how disconnected we are. And then we say, oh, I'm feeling anxious, or I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling angry, or I'm having, you know, difficulty in my relationships, or I'm having insomnia or addiction, or, you know, whatever is happening, that we're looking for something else to fill the hole of what really needs to be where connection would go. And so I think during this time right now, people are really struggling because they didn't have a lot of practice and they didn't sort of cultivate those connections. And now I think that if there's any silver lining at all to this pandemic that we're in right now, it's that people are really saying, wait a minute, I need to prioritize the connections in my life and I need to prioritize the connections that matter. So who is important to me and why? And what are some of the connections that maybe weren't so nourishing to me? Yeah, I think this has been a really big eye opener for a lot of people. And you're right for that. 
being like, okay, like I have all this time. I have all this isolation to myself. Like who do I need to really reconnect with that has been meaningful in my life? Because as a society, we're always so distracted. It's like between sporting events and between work and between, you know, different, different social events and everything else. I think it, it creates this overwhelm for our brain and overstimulation where we forget about the value of connecting with other people. But, you know, the one thing I was going to wanted to ask you about was, you know, you have an, you have an incredible story of being able to not only go through being an executive at, at NBC and then not, then going on to being a commentator for NPR and then going into journalism and all that stuff. But then you decide to become a therapist. So where, where did that come from? Like you have this job where you're working with like ER and, and friends and then you're on NPR, which is arguably like the biggest radio job there is. Like why therapy? Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't one of those people who, when I was young, said, I'm going to grow up and become a therapist. That never would have crossed my mind. Although in retrospect, it makes sense because I was always interested in the human condition. And I was also always interested in story because mm -hmm. I think that we... We, we share our experience through story. We make sense of our lives through story. You know, whenever you talk to a friend and you're telling them something, you're telling them a story. And that's your version of a story. When people come into therapy, you know, we're all unreliable narrators and we're all sort of telling our version of a story. And sometimes it's a faulty narrative and it needs some editing. But that's how we make sense. Cave drawings were stories, right? So that's how we communicate. And so when I, when I started working, I started working in the entertainment business because I loved story and I loved the human condition. And so whether that was through film and later through television, you know, I, I really felt like the reason that you watch those shows, the reason that they make you laugh or cry is because these stories are about being human. And then when I was working on ER, I spent a lot of time in a real ER because we used that time to do research. And our consultant on the show, who was a, an ER physician, said, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. And I was like, I'm not leaving my job and going to medical school. I was a French major, you know, like, right. <laughs> like I'm not doing that. But I was also sort of like a math science person too. And I just hadn't really done that since school. And so I ended up going up to Stanford for medical school. And when I got there, managed care was just coming into play. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to really spend time with my patients in the way that I wanted to. And so I started writing and I started writing in a way, I think, to help people to tell their stories. And I left medical school to become a journalist. And it was after working as a journalist that I thought, you know what, I you know, I, first of all, talking about connection, I had a baby and I felt really disconnected from other adults during the day. Like I loved my child, but I think any new parent can relate to that feeling of just, I need connection with other people who can speak. And so the UPS guy would come and he'd like, you know, I would detain him when he would bring packages. I'd be like, how about those diapers? And he just, you know, backed away to his big brown truck. And then he started tiptoeing to my door and like gently putting the package down. So I would not open the door and try to talk to him. And we later became very good friends, by the way, which is told in the book, but I realized I needed to do something. So I called up the dean at Stanford Medical School and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you're welcome to come back, but you'd be doing mostly medication management and you really want those longer term, deeper connections. So why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and then you can do the kind of work that you've always talked about doing. And, and that's what I did. And I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And I think that the, you know, and I, I still do both, you know, I still, you know, I write books, I have a, a weekly column, I have a podcast and I have a clinical practice. And I think everything I do is about story and the human condition. Yeah. And I think what really is fascinating to me is that whole notion of you being able to help your patients rewrite their stories. Cause as somebody who's been in therapy, you know, I've, you know, spent a lot of time in therapy, you know, sometimes just talking to somebody, yeah, it helps, but that's only part of it. The other part is how can I change the narrative? How can I change the story I'm telling myself to then move forward in a positive way so that I can rewrite my future? And I'm not just in the same cycle of like blaming and talking and blaming and talking. So how do you really get your patients to kind of rewrite their stories, patients, clients, whatever you call them, whatever you call it, like 
in a in such a way that is easy and efficient for them to kind of pick up on it. Yeah. So I think that's the difference between what we get out in the world and what we get in therapy. And I write about that in the book, the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Right. So idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. Our friends will tell us a story like, here's what happened and here's what the other person did. And we'll say, yeah, you were right. They were wrong. That's terrible. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it just reinforces our very narrow view of a particular situation. And so, and if you listen to your friends, by the way, tell their stories over time, you realize, wait a minute, they're telling me the same story, just with different characters and maybe Mm. a different scenario, but it's the same thing where like someone, you know, like they have no responsibility or role in this story. Like things are just happening to them. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you, but we don't (laughs) say that to them. They were always the common denominator when we don't realize it sometimes, you know? Right, right. And so we're not saying, you know, I've seen you, this happen with your last three jobs. I've seen this happen with your last three relationships, you know, or you keep telling me this keeps happening in your marriage or whatever it is, right? Or with your kid. And so what you get in therapy isn't idiot compassion, but you get wise compassion. And wise compassion is where we hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do before. And that's where the rewriting comes in. So someone comes in and they say, you know, here's, here's what happened. And, you know, usually they want something to change Mm. and yet they don't realize that they're going to need to change. They want someone else or something else to change. And so they want my help in getting someone else to change. Right. And what they come to realize is that, of course, there are difficult people. You know, I remember when I was training, one of my supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right? I've seen, I've seen but, that. I've seen that quote floating around. I think I saw Mel Robbins. Somebody post something about it maybe yesterday. I forget. That's funny. Are you, you say that. Yeah. Wow. Somebody posted something like that. I don't remember who it was, but I saw somebody post something. Yeah. It's so true because I believe you are who you surround yourself with, but go on with the story. Yes. Yeah, so your supervisor was telling you that. Right. Then- so there are, right. And the point is that of course there are difficult people and there are people like that. But then the question is, what is your, what is your role in that? Where is your agency? So do you want to be in relationship with that person? And if you have to be for various reasons, it's a family member and whatever it is, you know, how do you want to redefine that relationship? And how do you, you know, is there something that you're doing in the way that you react to that person? So Mm -hmm. they might do what they do, but you have lots of choices about how you respond. And so if you reenact the same scene over and over, they do this, you respond in the same way you've been doing for 10 years or 20 years or whatever, nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so therapy can really help you to say, you know, what's going on? Like if you're the protagonist of your story, is the protagonist moving forward or is the protagonist going in circles? you know, is the, who are the heroes and who are the victims? And is that really true? Or is there more nuance to the story? And, and mostly can you perspective take, can you take the perspective of the other people involved in this story? And if they were telling me the same story, what would they say? And is there a piece of their, their story that rings true? that maybe you don't want to look at because you have shame around that part of the story. So somebody might come in and they'll tell me a story, but they're leaving out an entire piece of the story that's very relevant, or they're emphasizing certain parts of the story and minimizing other parts of the story because they don't really want to get into the parts where maybe they could be making some changes. Yeah, I so relate to that because I think so many times we we want to relinquish the responsibility and control of our own behavior and put it onto somebody else. Like it's somebody else's fault and responsibility to fix us, right? It's our parents, it's our friends, it's our spouse, it's our exes, it's coworkers, whoever it is, but really no one's going to change us until it's till like we are ready to be the ones to actually do it. And I remember when I was in, I was in jail and this, you'll see why where I'm going with this is I was in jail back in 2008 on felony drug charges. And I was a drug addict and I was selling all kinds of drugs. And I was blaming everybody in my life. I remember talking to my cellmate and I was just like, who who was a guy who actually like, he was kind of like Wendell for you in the book. This guy was a very, just told me like it was like, you know, in a way that I I didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear. So he, uh, he was just like, I was like, my parents fault. They got divorced and I got bullied in school. And, and he looked at me and he said, the PG version, he's like, quit being a wuss. He's like, quit being a victim. Right. He's like, you got yourself here. He said, there's plenty of other people who are in your situation who didn't wind up in jail. You are in jail. 
So you can either be a man, look yourself in the mirror and say, it's on you, your responsibility, your choices, your decisions to grow, or you can go sit in the corner and cry. Like, which one do you want to do? You know, that that's so powerful because the taking responsibility part is the part that so many of us have trouble with. So there's this moment with Wendell, who's my therapist, and I write about him. And he says to me at one point, you know, I think so many of us, we come in and we feel like, yeah, I'm trapped by this situation, these circumstances. And he said to me, you know, you remind me of this cartoon. <laughs> and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open. No bars. In other words, the prisoner isn't actually in jail. So why don't we walk around the bars? So many of us would rather just shake those bars and say, I'm in jail. I can't get out, right? Why don't we just look to the right or the left and walk around those bars? We don't want to look to the right and the left and see that it's open because if we see that it's open, then we're free. But with freedom comes responsibility. Now, we are responsible for our lives. We are responsible for our choices. And it's so much more comfortable sometimes to be able to blame somebody else for what doesn't go right in our lives than to say, oh, wait a minute, I'm responsible for that. Yeah. And I think deep down, the funny thing, the ironic thing I should say is when we do that, consciously, we know that it's, we're only becoming more miserable. Like inside, we, we know that we should be taking responsibility. We should be changing the way we eat. We should be changing the way we respond to certain behavior, to certain patterns or, or whatever it is. But it's just easier for our ego or easier for our, our own self-image and self-esteem to put blame on somebody else because then like, it's like we almost temporarily feel better, but long-term we feel worse because then that just you know, prolongs our own healing. I, I think that sometimes the reason that we do that is because we feel like we should get a redo, you know, like mm. we feel like this, you know, in, in your case, you know, your parents got divorced or whatever happened. Right. Um, and we feel like, you know, I should get a redo. This wasn't fair. And maybe there were things that, that weren't fair when you were a kid, but when you're an adult, that happened. And then you have to decide what to do with that. Sure. That's going to shape you in some way, but how there are lots of different ways that it can shape you. Like what your Wendell in jail said to you, right? That other people have had the same situation, but they made different choices with it. And so once we let go of the hope for a better childhood, then we can have the agency we need to move forward and have a better future. But if we're going to cling to that, I want, this is so unfair. I've been done wrong and I want to redo. You're just punishing yourself. Mm. You're just keeping yourself in that position of, wow, I'm, I'm still the victim. Except this time you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. And there's nothing more paralyzing than being the victim, right? Because I think so many times we, 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 we want to rewrite our past and we can't. It's over. The only thing we can rewrite is the future. And it's about like really like swallowing our pride, checking our ego and being like, you know what? Like, I'm not really proud of some of the decisions I made, or I'm not proud of the way I was treated, but going forward, I'm going to change, you know, for the better and I'm going to stay committed to it. And, you know, as a therapist, and I mean, for me as a coach, I think about this sometimes, like, do you ever feel like I get such great advice? I wish I would take it. Like I heard you, you talk in the book, you would give advice to your clients. And then I felt like Wendell was giving you some of the same advice, not specifically the same situations, but there, there was a lot of parallel between the two. I mean, so like talk a bit about like about that. And then, cause I mean, I feel like people are like, man, therapists, they must like, they must be the most perfect people ever. And we all know it's, we're all, we're all human. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think there are kind of two images of therapists out in the world. And, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but they're making a television series of, of the book. Yep. Maybe you should talk to someone. And one thing that's really important to me is that, it's a show about people who happen to be therapists and not about therapists. And the mm -hmm. distinction is that I think that the, the misconceptions about therapists are either that, yeah, they have everything together or the opposite, that they're total train wrecks, right? Like you've seen, you know, oh, look, the therapist who's, who's you know, really good at, at what he or she does in the room with patients, but is like a hot mess outside the room. And I think neither of those is true. So I was going through something like people do. I say at the, at the beginning of the book that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. I know what it's like to be a person in the world. I don't think anybody wants to go to a robot, but you also have to have worked through things in your life. And so I was going through a breakup, an unexpected breakup that turns out to not have been so unexpected, I discover, in my therapy. 
And I think that, you know, what therapy does is it gives you almost like a really good second opinion on your life from someone who's not already in your life. And so even as a therapist, I'm too close to it. I'm too close to myself to see certain things sometimes. So that's why it's important that therapists go to therapy. You know, just because you you can see something with somebody else doesn't mean that you can see it with yourself because you're too close to the situation. Even your friends and family are too. Yeah, I 100% uh, agree with you because, you know, we can only tell the same story to ourselves so many times before we just kind of get bored with it ourselves. And same with other people in our lives that are closest to us when you're complaining about the same person, the same situation, the same thing. And they're like, they're like, maybe you should go, maybe you should go talk to someone or maybe like subconsciously they're trying to tell us that without like saying it like, you know, out loud. And, you know, I think the one thing that's important for everybody to remember is like, there's so much, there used to be this huge stigma about going to therapy that you're, that you have issues or whatever, if you go to therapy, but, but really it's, it's more about like the, the changing the perspective, like you talk about, it's about like, it's about like personal growth and personal yeah. development, right? And how you can continue to develop as a human and get better and grow. I mean, because if we're not growing, we're dying. Well, yeah. I mean, I think also, I think that we look at our emotional health differently from the way that we look at our physical health. So, mm. you know, if, if you, if something feels off, let's say you have like some chest pain or something, something is off in your body, you're going to go get it checked out before you have a massive heart attack. You're going right. to say, wait a minute, I need to go get that looked at. But if something feels off emotionally, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling sad, you're having relational difficulties, you know, you're eating too much or you're scrolling through the internet all day, you know, whatever, like something is like not right. Then yeah, you know, you should get it checked out. But what we do is we minimize it. We say, well, it's not that bad. I have a roof over my head and food on the table and other people have it worse. But we don't do that with our physical health. We don't say like, yeah, I sprained my wrist, but you know, other people have cancer. So I'm not going to go get this x-ray and make sure it's not broken. Right. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to not go to the doctor because somebody else has it worse physically than you. And so I think that we need to really change the narrative around our emotional health and how important it is because the quality of our lives and the quality of the lives around us as well depends on our being healthy emotionally. And so it's, it's on every level. It's on a personal level. It's on a familial level, like who are the people that you're surrounding yourself with? And it's on a societal level too. And, you know, sort of the greater society is that really we are having a mental health crisis and people now I think are noticing because we've been, you know, forced into this situation with the pandemic of, wow, I really need to pay attention because now I, now I know that I need help, but it shouldn't need to come to that. We don't need to have the equivalent of an emotional heart attack to go talk to a therapist. Yeah. I mean, so about that, like what kind of advice are you, like, I mean, common, the like common advice you're giving to some of your clients to deal with the isolation. I mean, I know, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, you're maybe connecting with people, but it's not the same as, you know, touch, right? I know you talk about in, in your book, the importance of a like, human connection and physical touch. So what kind of things are you, are you giving your clients to do to kind of, you know, fill that void? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, You'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've been doing my sessions remotely, which before COVID, 
I was really opposed to because mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like a colleague said that doing online therapy is like doing therapy with a condom on because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's right. It, it just, it's not the same as like being in the physical space yeah, with someone yeah. where you hear each other breathe. You're seeing the same things. Right. There is an intimacy to sitting a few feet apart from somebody in the room together with nobody else. There are no distractions, no phones, no nothing beeping or pinging or, you know, anything. And, you know, therapy mediated through a screen is very different. I can't even see people's whole body. So like someone might say to me, you know, oh no, I'm not, I'm not anxious about that. But then they're like, their leg is going up and down. Like they're like kicking their leg. That's a sign of anxiety, but I can't see that on a zoom screen, for example. But what I've noticed is that there's a different kind of intimacy, which is that you see inside people's homes And, you know, as much as you try to make your office a very warm space, they're seeing inside my home, I'm seeing inside theirs. And I've discovered things about people like maybe their partners or their children or their parents or whoever, roommates, whoever they're living with, you know, sometimes they like walk by in the background and I'm like, oh, that's what that person looks like. Or they have a little interaction with them. And it's, it's a, it's a different kind of getting to know someone. And even something like there's somebody that I was seeing had a cello in the background every time we would log on. And I said, whose cello is that? And this person said, oh, it's mine. I I play it every day for like an hour. And I thought, wow, I didn't know that about this person. So, you know, I I think that even though I still, the in-person experience isn't the same as the online experience, I think that now is a really great time for people to reach out because it's so easy to access a therapist right now. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to deal with traffic, right? Um, you don't deal with parking and all the sort of logistical pieces. So I, I, I do think that's important. And in terms of just people reaching out to other people, here's a little PSA that I think people should know about. I see a lot of couples in my practice and I also see individuals and a lot of times the people in the couples will say, you know, I really love my partner, but like this person is driving me batty and I can't stand it. And I don't know, like I need outside people. And what I hear from people who are living by themselves or who are single, they'll say like, I'm going crazy and I don't want to bother my friends with like partners and kids because they're so busy and they have so much going on. Please call them. Please call the people who are in families um, because they want to hear from you. Don't hesitate to reach out. So, you know, I think that we make all these assumptions about who wants to hear from us or whether we're going to be a burden to people. And what I want to say about that is please reach out to people. You will discover very quickly who is very excited to hear from you. And maybe those friendships will deepen. And in a way that maybe you you didn't even realize that there was a lot there because you guys were so busy and sort of the normal flow of life before this. And then there will be people who maybe, you know, you'll realize, oh, we don't have as much there as I thought, but that's okay because you're going to start to really get to the essence of how is my life peopled and how can I grow those friendships and deepen those friendships? Yeah, I think, you know, you're you're so right in the, the pandemic now is either deepening relationships or it's like cutting them off, right? Because you're realizing like, you're really realizing who's really there for you. And hopefully people are learning to embrace the great people that we have in our lives. Cause you touched on, you know, earlier on in our conversation about the importance of who we surround ourselves with. So, you know, you touched on the, the, the TV series. How did that, how did that all come about? Did you have, did you have a vision of the series before you wrote the book? Like, or did it come about like as the book became more popular? Or did you have a relationship with Eva Longoria? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking at all about a TV series when I was writing the book. I was originally supposed to be writing a happiness book, ironically. And <laughs> as I write about in, in Maybe Stop Someone, that the happiness book just made me miserable. It, it literally made me depressed, which is mm. ironic. But um, I called it the miserable depression-inducing happiness book because I couldn't get myself to write it because I felt like it was just scratching the surface of something that I was seeing every day in the therapy room, which was real life. And it was you know, these heroic moments that happen in the therapy room, which looks very different from this vague concept of happiness. Mm. You know, happiness as a byproduct of living our lives in a way that's meaningful is what we all strive for. But happiness as the goal in and of itself is often a recipe for disappointment. And so I was really getting it more of you know, in this book, more of, you know, what does it mean to be human and, and how do we, how do, you know, what are our blind spots? How do we self-sabotage? How do we get through our struggles? What does that really look like? Which isn't about studies and this and that it's really about 
here, here are some stories you can read about people who have done that because I think you're going to see yourself in those stories. And so I didn't think about it as a TV series, but when I, you know, later when, when Eva Longoria wanted to do it, it seemed like, you know, of course it would be a TV series because therapy is almost like that. Think about like the episodic nature of television. Like you watch, if you're not binge watching, right? Like let's say that you're watching a show and it, and then there's a new episode, right? That's what therapy is like. It's like some, these stories that these are these character arcs that go on in our lives and they're real. And that's why good television resonates so strongly with people because it mirrors something that we experience in the arc of our lives. You know, it's very nuanced as opposed to like a movie in TV, you have a much longer time to develop the characters, to see the nuances, to see all the plot twists and the ways that our stories kind of get derailed and get back on track and go on a completely different track. Sometimes that's what it's like being a therapist and, and being witness to people's lives. So I think it lends itself very naturally to a TV series. Yeah. And especially to have to twist in like a, a comedy approach to it as well, I think will help shed some light on like how therapy isn't just like super serious, right? There is like, no. a <laughs> right. Right. It's all, it's all about the relationship, right? Like, I mean, it's all, like, just like you talk about in your book, your relationship with Wendell, like if it wasn't, if you guys didn't have a connection, there wouldn't have been as much progress and growth because there just wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have seen eye to eye on certain things. And then like, it just kind of, you guys would have split. And the same thing goes with like any other, I think, practice where you're in the relationship business, where you have clients that it's like, okay, there has to be some chemistry. There has to be some sort of kind of connection. So. Well, the, the thing, the thing about the relationship is that when you're doing, when you're really making changes, there's going to be some discomfort. Mm. And so, you know, and I want people to orient towards something that feels uncomfortable because that's the place where you're going to grow from. If you're just comfortable and you're just kind of going along, right? You're not going to move or change. You're not going to get outside of that comfort zone to do something that might be better for you. And so you want to be on that edge of where there's some discomfort, but not so much discomfort that you're so intimidated that you're not going to try something new. It's almost like most big transformations come about from the hundreds of tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. So that's that edge of discomfort, right? You're a little bit uncomfortable and, and you have someone there supporting you through that discomfort so that you can take that step and grow and transform. And that's where I think that relationship is so important. And study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy is indeed the relationship that you have with your therapist. Absolutely. And talk of, talking about getting uncomfortable, I want to talk about accountability. And I feel like there's two sides, right? At least on social media, there's like either the, the side where you have to be hardcore self-accountable to yourself, or there's like the self-love, like, don't worry about it, just love yourself. And I don't see any blend, but I, I've heard you talk about how you can have both and why I feel like it's like the secret sauce. So talk a bit about like how you can really incorporate ac accountability and compassion to grow emotionally. Right. So a lot of people think that you have to self-flagellate, you know, to hold yeah. yourself accountable. And that's not true at all. And then a lot of people don't understand that self-compassion actually includes a lot of accountability. Mm. It's not just like, oh, love yourself no matter what you do or how you are. Right. No. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so it's interesting because when I give talks, I'll often say, to the audience, you know, who is the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Is it your parent? Is it your sibling? Is it your best friend? Is it, you know, you know, your child, whoever it is, right? Who's the, your adult child? Who is it that you talk to most in the course of your life? And I get a lot of hands for those, but really the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves, mm. it's ourselves. And so what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so I had this client and she was very self-critical, but she could not see it. So I said, listen, I want you to go home and I want you to write down everything you say to yourself in the course of a few days and come back and tell me about it. And so she comes back the next week and she starts to read it. She says, I, I can't even read this. I am such a bully to myself. And, you know, things that she would say to herself, like, you know, oh my God, you're so stupid, you know, for like this minor mistake that she made where it's like, if anyone else did that, we would not actually think they were stupid, not even close or just like, oh, you look horrible. You shouldn't go out like this, you know, and if we saw a friend looking like that, we wouldn't think twice about it. And so we're so hard on ourselves that way, but that doesn't mean we don't hold ourselves accountable. So you can be kind to yourself. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it helpful? 
really good questions to ask and to notice that radio station playing in the background all the time in our minds. And do you want to change the radio station if you're playing this sort of, you know, abusive radio station? You don't need to listen to that. But at the same time, you have to say, okay, I'm going to look at myself and I'm going to be kind even when I know there's room for growth. So what happens is often it's our shame that prevents us from looking at where we need to grow. And so we say, oh, I'm just going to love myself and I'm not going to look at that thing. But really what we're doing is we're sitting on like a massive ball of shame. And so what we need to do is it's kind of like what I do with people in therapy is, you know, we like to say insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So somebody might say like, now I understand why I keep getting into that fight with this person. And I'll, and they'll come back and, and I'll say, well, did you do something different? They'll say, no, but I understand why I did that. And I was kinder to myself, you know, and I'll be like, that's great that you are kinder to yourself, but at the same time, you have to do something different. Right. And what people don't realize is that the kinder you are to yourself, the less, the, the less shame you're going to have. So you're not going to feel so much shame and you're, then you're going to be able to say, okay, I can look at this thing that's hard to look at. And now I'm going to be able to change it. When we self-flagellate, we don't look at anything. We're just kind of like, do this, do that, do this. You know, you're terrible. Do it this way. That might last for the short term. It's almost like New Year's resolutions. They don't last very long. But if you can be kind to yourself and also say, and I'm going to, I, I, I care about myself so much that I'm going to hold myself responsible for this. That's the sweet spot. And I think you're right. I think the biggest thing that you know, we do as people that can tear our, our own selves down is the way we talk to ourselves, is the way that we communicate with ourselves on a daily basis. And I think the if we were to talk to our friends the way we would talk to ourselves, sometimes we would be so even more isolated than we are now. Can you imagine right. just every person in your life? You're like, you're so stupid. You're this, you're that, you're fat. You're like, man, we would be so isolated. And you know, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about is people would, I mean, I'm sure it would typically come in from depression and anxiety or whatever. And the cause could be school. The cause could be their job. The cause could be relationships. What are, what effect now are you seeing with social media? Like are people coming in and saying, I have, I'm addicted to my phone or I am anxious because I'm looking at people's like profiles on Instagram. Are you seeing any of that? I'm seeing that a lot of people are trying to fill something up with something else. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to numb their feelings. So people might be feeling all kinds of things right now, that tense loneliness, sadness, anxiety. And, you know, we need to use our feelings like a compass because our feelings tell us what we want. And so if you're anxious, you can say, okay, I need to do something about my anxiety. Maybe I need to reach out to someone. Maybe I need to exercise. You know, what do I need? Maybe I need to call a therapist. What do I need to do right now? But if we ignore it, we try to kind of stuff it down and we think it's gone away, that feeling, but actually it hasn't. So numbness isn't nothingness. Numbness is being, it's a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings, not, not having no feelings. And so what we do with those feelings that we've stuffed down is it comes out in other ways. It comes out in insomnia. It comes out in, you know, like a short temperedness with the people around you. It comes out in too much food or wine mm. or that mindless scrolling on the internet, which a colleague of mine says that the internet is the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. Right. So what we do is we, we try to fill this hole with a distraction. And what we don't realize is that might work in the very short term but it just makes the problem worse. So if you can sit with the feeling and identify the feeling and not be so afraid of the feeling, because sometimes I think, you know, the feeling itself is, is scarier than, you know, like, like, I mean, the, the, the fear of the feeling is scarier than the feeling itself. So we're so afraid of the feeling, but the feeling isn't actually that scary. And so if we can sit with the feeling and say, what is this tell me that I need telling me that I need right now? And that's how you can use your feelings effectively. So the goal is to feel the feelings, to not drown in the feelings, but to say, how can I, you know, what is it telling me? What can I do right now? And everybody has different things that they can do. And if they don't have that toolkit, right? If they don't know what they can do with those feelings, that's when it's really important. Can you reach out to someone? Can you reach out to another person that you know is a good person to talk to? And we know that there are good audiences and bad audiences. Pick a good audience 
<laughs> right? And then if you don't have those people in your life, can you reach out to a therapist? Even if you do have those people in your life, a therapist could be really useful, especially right now. Feeling the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so many people when they go through pain or they go through adversity, they want to just push it away and say, you know what, I want this to go away as fast as possible. But really, it just prolongs the pain even more because now we're not really sitting in it. And when we move on to whether it's the next relationship, a next job, whatever, it's going to carry on with us into that. And then it's going to just be this, you know, snowball effect where you're taking this golf ball size problem and it's now becoming a big bowling ball because of you're not your, your inability or patience, I guess, to kind of deal with it. And one of the things I want to talk to you about or ask you about is your, your view on envy. Cause I actually heard you share, I think it was on Jay's podcast. It was, it was very actually insightful on how envy can kind of be a compass too. And envy gets a bad rap because it's like this, you know, this negative emotion and people who are envious, they're bad and negative. But talk a bit, how, talk a bit about how it can actually be really positive for people to really change. Yeah. So you're right that I think we place a value on different kinds of experiences that we have. So mm. anxiety and sadness, we always say, oh, those are bad. Let's get rid of them. As opposed right. to, wow, this could be really useful. Same with envy. So a lot of people have a lot of shame around feeling envy because they feel like, well, I shouldn't feel that. That that makes me a selfish person or I should be happy for that other person. But Envy is really useful because it tells you what you want. When you feel envy, it's because somebody else has something that you want in your life too. And so you can use that to say, oh, you know, sometimes what we do with envy is we say, I don't like them very much, or they didn't deserve that, right? And we make all kinds of, like, we kind of put them down. Like they didn't, they shouldn't have that, right? But instead, it's really helpful to say, wait a minute. If I want something like that, what are the steps that I can take in my own life to get closer to having whatever version of that I want in my life? And if we don't actually let ourselves experience the envy, we don't, we don't know what we want. We just sit there, you know, putting down everybody else or talking about why they didn't deserve what they have. Um, and it's a very like negative space to be in and it doesn't move you forward in any way. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And again, it's about perspective. It's like, okay, like how can we shift to make it a positive thing? Maybe you're envious of you know, the way somebody was able to write a book or you're envious of a family. Why not twist it around and be like, okay, like how can I maybe change this and talk to them and maybe you know, tell them how much I respect and admire them and maybe some top lessons and tips on how I can get to that place so that, again, getting back to the beginning of our conversation so that I can actually take responsibility and control and do the work to get to that place. So I wanted to know, I, I was dying to ask you this, you, you, you have such a great gift at storytelling and it was very obvious in your book. Have you any stories since the book or anything during COVID that like either with yourself or maybe like a client that you'd be willing to share? Well, I have this new podcast. It's called Dear Therapists. Yep. And so every week people can hear stories and I get to hear this all the time because I'm a therapist, but right. a lot of people don't get to hear this. And I think what's really great is that every letter that we pick, I do it with Guy Winch, who, you know, we've mm -hmm. both done these TED Talks and, and people may know him from his TED Talks or his books as well. And what we do is, you know, I, I, he writes the advice column for TED, I write the advice column for the Atlantic, right. but no sort of what happens after we give the advice. And so when we talk about story, I think there's a satisfaction of knowing, well, how does the story progress? Like what happens? What's the next, you know, when we're talking about television, like what's the, what's the next episode? And so what we do is we, people get to hear us as therapists sort of talk people through their dilemmas. They get to hear the two of us as therapists talk without the person there about sort of how we think about their problem. And then we give them suggestions that they have to try within a week and then they come back and they tell us how it went and wow. so much to learn from what they, what they took from that conversation and what they did in terms of, you know, our suggestions and, and then what worked and also what didn't work because sometimes we're wrong, right? Or sometimes they did something even better than what we thought of because they were shifted by something we said in the conversation. And so I feel like that is a weekly, almost storytelling session. On, on Dear Therapist, because what you're hearing is these very real stories. And mm -hmm. then it's not just a static story. It's, and then how do we move this story to the next chapter? Yeah. I mean, I actually 
you know, listened to a couple episodes of your podcast and knew you had that too. And I think it's, it's interesting the way you do it because it's not just like you, you do it, you know, and bring people on where you're talking to them. You literally like people write into you and then you give them feedback. And I think the homework thing is important because I think, you know, so many times like people will come onto a show like that, you give them advice and then like, you'll you maybe run into them like six months later and they're like, Oh, like how'd that go? And they're like, Oh, you know, I don't want to talk about it. But I think it's, <laughs> it's gotta be pretty like rewarding like a week later for them to be like, wow, like I actually implemented like this gratitude thing, or I actually did, you know, change the way I talked to myself or I went for a walk or whatever advice you give them. And wow, my life already, I can just see a noticeable difference in my attitude, my energy and the way I carry, carry myself. Because I think like, there's so many, we, we're just looking a lot of times for, for validation. And sometimes we go about it in a negative way, but validation can actually be very positive because if you are kind of talking to a professional like yourself about things you might already know, and then you're kind of reaffirming that, I think sometimes it can give us the validation we need to actually make a positive, you know, change. And, you know, what do you think is missing right now from our, from a men, the mental health aspect, because I think right now our mental health is at like an all time high or, 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 I mean, our mental health epidemic, I should say, is at an all time high. People are as anxious and depressed and stressed as ever. What kind of things do you think is they're missing that people could kind of do like right now, if it was just a few things? Well, you know, as we talk about sort of like the book and the podcast, and I think about this common theme of yeah. people feeling stuck, right? You know, people come to you when they feel stuck, they feel like, I am in this situation and I don't know where to go with it. And so I think that a lot of people right now during COVID are just feeling stuck. And one of the things going back to what we were talking about with, you know, how we label our emotions. So let's take anxiety. There are two kinds of anxiety. There's productive anxiety. There's actually a really good kind of anxiety, which is it's when you are reasonably worried about something and it's productive because it makes you take action to protect yourself. So we are reasonably worried about getting COVID. So we are wearing masks and we are, you know, social distancing and doing all the things that we need to do to take care of our physical immune systems. Then there's unproductive anxiety, which is obsessive rumination. It's kind of like what we talked about before that sort of like, where, how do we, you know, the distractions, right? Mm -hmm. And so the distraction from, from like doing something productive is we are going to check the headlines every hour, or we are going to, you know, distract ourselves with all the typical things, you know, whatever, pick your addiction, you know, <laughs> it could be, you know, online shopping, alcohol, whatever you, you pick it, it is you TikTok, know, food, yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever, TikTok, whatever, <laughs> yeah, okay. you name it. And and then what happens is it's like this obsessive rumination. You're just ruminating and ruminating and ruminating about something. And it might not even be about COVID. Like it might be about like that thing that your partner said to you that you mm -hmm. can't get over. You're like, I can't believe they said that. And you won't let it go. And it's like this obsessive rumination about sort of what happened. And, and that's really unproductive because it doesn't help you to take action and do something different. And so I think during COVID, it's really important to say, you know, how am I using whatever I'm feeling in a productive way? And, and that, that I think will be most helpful because right now, you know, again, you know, and, and maybe that means I want to go talk to a therapist because sometimes we just can't, we all have blind spots and we just can't see something that somebody else can see. We can't see how to get unstuck from the place that we're at, but it might not be that complicated, you know? And so, yeah. and, and so like even one small change, and especially on the podcast, because it's so immediate, you see it right away. You know, you can see that like, let's just look at the situation this way whether it's like, you know, heartbreak, like this is on our, on our podcast, like, you know, heartbreak or stepchildren or infidelity or whatever it is. Just look at it in this way that you haven't been able to see it. And then let's see what changes. Right. And so I think that people feel like always like I have to make a big change or else it's not worth it. No, <laughs> you don't. Even a small change will have a huge effect. Absolutely. And I think we are stuck, right? I totally agree. We are, we feel like, all right, like, can we go in this place? Can we go in that place? Are they going to, are schools going to be public? Are they going to be online? Are we able to go to a restaurant? Are we, we have to wear a mask? Can we travel? Can we do this? There's so many questions that we've never really had before that we, and, and we're like, we feel like stuck because it's like, we're, we don't have control. And I think as humans, when we feel like we don't have control over something, we try to control it even more. And then when we try to control the uncontrollables, we, lose control of what we can control. And I think, well, the, here's thing, the thing, right? 
here's the thing. We never had control. Right. And that's something really important. I think people find this like with love too. You know, they feel like I want to be in a risk-free mm. relationship. Right. There's no such thing. If you're, you know, love inherent to love is, is some lack of control, some vulnerability. There, there's always risk if you want love. And so the same thing right now that we're in this situation that feels very vulnerable. And so humans don't do well with uncertainty. We don't like that. We want everything to be certain, but we're going to have to get much more comfortable with uncertainty and, and not try to change the fact that things are uncertain, but to change how we respond to things being uncertain. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like as humans, as people, I know myself, like when you, when you don't know something or something's uncertain, it, it kind of causes this massive insecurity and it kind of stirs inside of you. And I think it's up to us that we talked about at the beginning of our choices. How are we going to deal with it? Are we going to connect with great people? Are we going to exercise? Are we going to eat well? Are we going to listen to podcasts? Are we going to go see someone? Like, what are we going to do to help alleviate that anxiety and that stress? So this, this show's up and coming, right? When's it set to come out? Like when's it set to be released? Is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? I, we don't have a date yet. It's in progress. Okay. That's awesome. Well, and I think what's, what's really fascinating is it's all kind of come back full circle for you, that you started like in the media business, you get into therapy, you write this book, and then now you're back in the media business, if you will, like with your TV series. And I just got to say, like, it's incredible to watch like the growth. I mean, just just somebody that, I mean, just from someone who's in the process now of like trying to continue to grow and evolve with my own podcast and my writing and everything, and just seeing somebody who's actually really done it, it's really admirable. So like, I mean, I really do thank you for coming on here and just sharing not only your story, your expertise, you know, opening up with some vulnerability. I mean, it was so appreciated. Oh, well, thank you so much. I so enjoyed having this conversation with you. Yeah, me too. So I will make sure to put all the links to the podcast, to your um, column at the, at the Atlantic, um, your book, obviously, and your social media stuff in the notes on the podcast. And you know, for those listening, if you're in that position where you're feeling stuck and you're not so sure of what to do and you kind of don't know who to talk to, don't know who to turn to, maybe it is like legitimately time to go talk to someone. And even now, like during COVID, like you don't have to have the the worry. I mean, one of the worries for me was always like, am I going to see someone I know in the waiting room? Like that insecurity, right? Like you don't have that anymore. You don't have like the traffic, you don't have the parking. It's just all on online on zoom. And it's like, we, we think that we will hate it, but we actually learn to kind of appreciate it because we're in the comfort of our own home. You can like, you know, just kind of just sit here and be more relaxed. So, you know, but what I more encourage you to do is to, to read Lori's book, Give her a follow on social media because she posts some great content. Check out her podcast. She's absolutely hilarious and real, which we need more of. So Lori, once again, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And just one final note, uh, we always love feedback. We always love to hear what you thought of this episode. So if you really enjoyed this episode, you know, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you um, as well and you know, reach out to Lori or myself. And once again, you're listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we will see you next time.